Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Tigers by the Fire, World War II Discussions and Stories. My name is Michael Arvitas. Today I am here with Charlie Jano and John Sheridan. Hello, I'm John Sheridan. I'm Charlie Jano. Today we're going to be talking about the Battle of Midway. A little brief explanation of the war going into Midway. Obviously, we're in 1942. The war has not gone well for the United States. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the U.S. lost battles at Wake Island, Battle of the Philippines. They lost Guam. And so the United States has been in a virtual retreat ever since then. About a month before Midway, the U.S. had a stalemate slash victory at the Battle of the Coral Sea. The Battle of the Midway, as Charlie and John will tell you, is one of the turning points in the war and looked at as one of the main catalysts. So I'm going to let them kind of start us off. Yeah, the Battle of Midway was honestly one of the most decisive points in the War Pacific because it changed the Japanese's offensive military doctrine to more of a defensive one that we'd see later in the war. And while it was a victory for the United States, a lot of people think it was, oh, the United States won, hurrah, everybody, you know, everything is good. But as we'll talk about later in our podcast, there was many, many attacks that were sent out by United States forces that were just complete failure. So it was more than just we won. The battle itself is, I mean, obviously it's one of the most famous battles of the war. It's one of the ones that's in every U.S. history textbook. They've made multiple movies about it. And it it definitely is a, a big turning point. Now, a lot of Americans don't understand how, in some ways, lucky the battle ended up turning out, uh, how many things actually went into it, and the fact that this was a multi-day thing. This wasn't just one quick action. So I'm uh, very curious to see what you guys have. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. You will see as soon as we got this episode, this was a battle that was made by really two decisions made by two people. And this was a really important battle because... This would lead the Japan, Japan to lose four of their six heavy aircraft carriers, a majority of their experienced pilots. This was also a huge morale boost for United States forces who had just suffered defeat after defeat. So this was a really big boost for them as well. For the lead up to the battle, there's, it was short, attacked shortly after Pearl Harbor uh, when the Japan made their first push real into the Pacific. At that battle, the two destroyers were bombarding the island of Midway. And the first Marine Medal of Honor was awarded to Lieutenant George Cannon, who uh, was injured and continued to serve on the island. But nothing really happened to the island after that. And so later, once we get into May and June, Admiral Yamamoto started to plan his attack. And while he planned, he had a carrier force led by Nagumo. It consisted of two light aircraft carriers, two seaplane carriers, seven battleships, 15 cruisers, 42 destroyers, and 10 submarines. This was a very, very large battle. This was known as the Japanese Mobile Force. So the plan overall was to first destroy the U.S. fleet, if there was any. They hoped for a surprise, and then actually attack and invade the island. Yeah, they certainly tried to get as much surprise. That's why they used so much code and everything. But eventually, as we all know, we were able to decipher that and find out where the battle was going. So one of the things to, to kind of piggyback on what you guys are saying, the Battle of Midway for the Japanese, and Yamamoto kind of has a couple different theories. One, he knows that if the war lasts for more than a year or so, Japan's likelihood of winning that war uh, decreased exponentially. So the hope with Midway is to knock out the Pacific fleet of the United States. And while the island of Midway is the attack, I mean, it's simply just a refueling depot It's really to knock out that fleet and then possibly pressure Hawaii and to sue for peace. The idea that the Japanese are kind of going foolhardy is is incorrect, right? They they want to end the war, and they think this is the easiest way to end the war. Now, the U.S., on the same token, knows they're going to attack, as you guys are about to talk about with the intelligence stuff. Yeah, so um, the Japanese plan was actually also to add on to the adding the pressure for Pearl Harbor was to actually use the aircraft, the airports on the island, to help with any attacks with attacking 
Pearl Harbor and Hawaii. So the way they found out Midway was going to be attacked was the U.S. started to send unencrypted transmissions about problems on the islands. Um, and they kept seeing the Japanese use AF as the attack designation. So they finally, one of their transmissions was that Midway was out of water and they intercepted a transmission. The Japanese said AF has a water problem. And to your point, you know, the intelligence part of this is extremely important. The idea that they would look at these transmissions, and the U.S. is in the process of breaking the Japanese code, and they've done a good job of it, but intelligence is very spotty at best. And so the admirals needed, not an absolute, but they needed a you know a really good reason to move the fleet because they're going to be putting their the, the U.S. fleet in danger. If they're wrong about the attack, the U.S. fleet could be com- caught completely off guard or Hawaii is left open for a, a Japanese attack. So there are some risks in this. So, yeah, they, they definitely decrypt the code. The AF uh, is going to give it away with the water shortage at Midway. And after that deciphering of the code was found out, Nimitz scraped together three aircraft carriers, the Hornet, Enterprise, and Yorktown, and it was supported by eight cruisers and 18 uh, destroyers. And this will move us into the battle which started on the morning of June 3rd. The thing interesting about these aircraft carriers, too, is that they had been damaged. And uh, one of them literally is just pulled out of repair for this battle. And so it's it's a very rapid process because you had the Coral Sea where we had you know, severe damage to multiple carriers. So uh, it's definitely a, a – he used the right terminology. He kind of pulls together three carriers for this offensive. Yeah, the Japanese actually thought the Yorktown was sunk. They thought it didn't even get away from the battle. So for the battle itself, on the June 3rd, the morning, um, scout planes spot the Japanese fleet, but that was only a portion of it. They mistook it for the whole fleet. Around noon, B-17s were sent out to bomb. These were land-based aircraft, and that was an advantage the Americans had at the battle was their land-based aircraft. Yeah, and later at 9.15, we get the first and what seems like the only one for a while, the first hit on a target, which was a tanker hit by a torpedo from a PBY Catalina. And that's going to be one of the only hits and damage to the fleet we have for a while. We have a couple of fleets that go out to try and sink anything, but it's all just no hits, no hits, no hits. So yeah, the next morning, Marine fighters decided to engage a Japanese counterattack of bombers and fighters, and this is, starts the trend of high casualties of around 50%. The actual battle of the Japanese on the island goes pretty well. They only use a l- lose a little bit of planes, but they leave the airfield intact for later use. Like I said earlier, they were going to use it to attack Pearl Harbor. And this actually led to an advantage for the Americans during the battle itself. During the first wave of the U.S. planes, they reached the Akagi, which is one of the Japanese aircraft carriers. And like I said, we sent all these planes, but there was no successful hits on any targets whatsoever. So Nagumo prepared for a second attack on the island because he didn't have intelligence that the U.S. carriers were close by. He thought that all the planes that he's seen so far were from the island. So he replaces his torpedoes with bombs. And just as this happens, Japanese scouts report the U.S. ships. He instantly cancels the government plan, but now the carrier decks are covered in fueled up aircraft and loose bombs. This would be an extreme fire hazard. And this would, was one of those decisions I mentioned earlier, where this is the one of the two decisions that really decided the outcome of this battle. And I think hindsight's always twenty twenty. Uh, in the moment, it does seem like the right decision because they're not expecting the U.S. to find the location of their fleet, uh, and they don't think that the U.S. can mount an offensive relevant enough for them to have you know squads in the air. And the next day at seven fifty five a.m., we sent another group of planes, sixteen Douglas dive bombers, 
as they try to attack the other aircraft carrier, the Soryu, and they scored no hits. Another thing with these planes is a majority of all these pilots are extremely underexperienced. They haven't seen any sort of combat in comparing to the Japanese pilots who had just come off of a major conflict with China. So we are already at that disadvantage, not to mention our planes are also outdated. And then after that, B-17s from Midway attack, but they don't do much. And it's followed by SB-2Us, another form of dive bombers. And again, they don't score any hits. The most important issue to the battle comes when Nagumo has all of his planes recovered to refuel after the attacks on the island. He brings them all back. And this would allow the U.S. carrier planes to that were currently out on patrol to kind of draw the AA fire towards them, which would open them, which would open the skies over for an attack which would come later by George, no, Wade McCluskey's dive bomb. U.S. carriers uh, became under command of Rear Admirals Spruance and Fletcher. Spruance launched planes at a distance they could not return from with fuel, but he sent them out in hopes of catching the Japanese off guard. He did this because before the actual battle, America did a couple of mock battles between their carriers, and they found that a carrier that got planes up and found the other carrier first and got the first attack off usually won. So he was gambling with these, these sending up these planes without enough fuel that he could hopefully knock out the enemy's carrier fleet before they could touch them. Uh, when doing this, uh, he also knew that the unreliable comms between Midway and carriers led to many planes never even seeing a glimpse of uh, any sort of Japanese carriers or fleet or anything like that. To, to the point that you guys are saying, what most, I feel like most Americans and most people don't realize is that, one, the Pacific Ocean is massive. And the idea that you're just going to know where these aircraft carriers are, they're miles and miles apart from each other. And so that's what makes the naval battles of World War II so different than those of World War I or previous engagements. Ships don't ever see each other in this. And so you're talking about sending up planes, hoping the intelligence is right, which it was in this case, almost to the minute, to the mile, but that they're going to get a little lucky, as you guys are about to talk about. Uh, yeah, so around 9.20 a.m., uh, the, one of the first squadrons that would actually find the, uh, the enemy aircraft carriers and start to try to get some hits in was 15 TBD torpedo bombers. They had, again, tried to attack the Soryu, and this was one of the first squadrons that, again, it was a failure, and only one survivor actually came back, and he didn't even fly back. He, fl- he was found and floating around the Pacific Ocean. It was George Gay. He had, was floating around for 30 hours before he was discovered. The battle was nearly over by the time he was found. At 10.20, another 41 TBDs are sent out, and only six return. Again, both these attacks scored zero hits. This was kind of a trend we see in the first couple of attacks with the Americans. And while these planes go out, Japanese fighters have been sent out to go try and shoot these down. But to their dismay, they leave the airspace open for Wade McCluskey and all of his dive bombers. So Wade's squadron is kind of a uh, unique story. This is the other decision I was mentioning earlier. That's hindsight. It was probably the second most important decision of the battle. Wade's squadron had been searching for the fleet for a while, and they were almost out of fuel. They decided that either they would have to go back soon or they were not going to see anything or they were going to ditch their planes in the ocean. But they actually saw a destroyer. And that was searching for a submarine, and it was on its way back to the actual fleet. So they decided to follow back that destroyer, and this would pay off, allowing them to actually get one of the first successful attacks on the Japanese carriers. So like you said, at 1022, Wade's squadron gets the, the, the first major hit on targets. 
the Kaga and the Akagi, setting them both ablaze. And another group of dive bombers from the Yorktown attacked the Soryu and also set it ablaze. This was because it, it was such a success, because like we said earlier, the decks were covered with bombs, covered in fuel and other aircrafts that had been grounded and things like that. And there's a big difference in, in how they're attacking. The torpedo bombers that the U.S. is implementing, one, we have a lot of defaulty torpedoes. Uh, a lot of them either don't go straight or don't detonate on impact. The dive bombers, when they do connect, they explode and they go decks into the aircraft carrier. And that's actually what caused one of the aircraft carriers to go up was they it went down to a munitions deck and it exploded. And so, yeah, they, they get two direct hits on these aircraft carriers. And the Japanese, up until this point in the war, really hadn't dealt with this total of a calamity. And the other aspect you have, remember, they sent planes out to attack the U.S. fleet and the island of Midway. Where are they going to land now is the other question. Yeah, many of those pilots wouldn't have a carrier to return to. They would have to ditch in the ocean. Many of them were found, which we don't later talk about. A lot of them gave up vital intelligence used later in the battle. But the, that was kind of the three minutes that decided the Pacific, you could say, because that those three carriers right and then were just attacked, and they were pretty much out of commission at that point because the Japanese also had uncovered wooden decks for all their aircraft carriers, which also helped with the spreading of fire on their decks. Yeah, the, the Japanese design, right, those wooden decks, they really did kind of go up in flames. And to your point, I mean, there's also another thing. Yeah, the U.S. is going to lose the Yorktown during this, but does that really impact the U.S. in the big scheme of the war? Not really. Japan can't replace these carriers as quickly as the U.S. is going to be able to replace them. It also is going to eliminate that aura of invincibility that Yamamoto had created for the Japanese Navy. So at the other side of the war in the Japanese, at 10.50, Yamaguchi takes command from Hiryu while Nagumo gets to a new capital ship and prepares the planes for a counterattack. Uh, while this is going on, the Japanese dive bombers were able to, what seems like, get the final blow in the Yorktown after coming out of dry dock and that quick little repair. It is down, but it's not out yet. So at 2.30, the ship was moving again. The second wave of torpedo attacks from the Japanese severely damages the Yorktown. And at 2.55, the order was given to abandon ship completely. Yeah, we see um, a lot more effective torpedo attacks from the Japanese because this is an advantage they would have throughout the majority of the war. Their torpedo technology was quite advanced, and they had some very, very good torpedoes. At 3.30 p.m., dive bombers from both remaining carriers were sent out to attack the last remaining Japanese carrier, the Hiryu. At 5 p.m., the first contact was made. The heroes here you was set ablaze with four direct bomb hits. Spruance pulls Task Force 16 back instead of pursuing the Japanese fleet because the Japanese were known to perform quite well at night and they didn't want to risk attacking the still the Japanese had their surface ships. And let's remember what a nighttime attack from the air in the ocean is like. There are no lights. And the idea that the planes are even going to come back, there's no GPS system, it's very risky. And we'll talk about this later when we get to certain battles in the war where nighttime raids are very, very hard for aircraft carriers to pull off at this time. Landing a plane in the middle of the night in the ocean is very difficult. Uh, and U.S. policy, by the way, this is something that's significant, carriers cannot have lights on at night because they don't want to give away positions to submarines. And so that's another issue that they deal with. So they try to not do too many night operations. Another thing, uh, just to kind of piggyback off what you were saying and how it was dangerous with no lights and anything like that. Also, like I had said earlier, we have so many inexperienced pilots to where some of them can't even land with bombs still intact on their plane. 
like with you hit the carrier too hard, bombs could come off and they're sliding across the deck. So mixed with darkness and not being able to see, it's just a recipe for disaster. So uh, as Task Force 16 is leaving, Task Force Task Force 17 falls behind, but they leave behind the USS Hughes, a destroyer, to guard the Yorktown uh, during the recovery effort. So the next day, the uh, the Japanese are kind of reeling from the battle. The Akagi and the Hiryu were scuttled after kind of burning the entire night. Yamaguchi went down with his ship following the Japanese honor code, but this stripped the Japanese of an excellent flag officer, which would kind of cost them later on. The next day, dive bombers attacked, claimed the Japanese cruiser Mikuma, and damaged Mogami. This was kind of like the last stick of the Japanese while the Americans were retreating. But during the recovery efforts for the Yorktown, a Japanese sub slipped into the protective ring of ships that were guarding it and destroyed it and the Hanman. Um, and on June 7th, 5 a.m., the Yorktown finally slipped under the waves. You know, to your point, Yamaguchi uh, going down with his ship, what also happened is some of his officers decided to do it too. And so the Japanese lose a decent amount of their officer corps in this battle, their naval officer corps, which you can't replace. I mean, these are highly experienced, highly trained naval officers. And Yamamoto, not to spoil the end, but I mean, Yamamoto is only going to be alive for about another year after this because he's going to get a plane shot down in another intelligence success by the United States in 1943. So now after the battle is kind of what seems to be over, we can talk about the significance and really what all happened. And while we did have lots of missed targets, missed targets, more you know, killed than returning, you can see that Japan loses 320 planes and around 3,000 personnel, and the U.S. only loses 150 aircraft and 317 personnel. So when you think about all those failures, you can see that it really wasn't in vain because in the end, we severely, like, just completely took them under, nowhere near the amount of planes and personnel lost on the U.S. side. So what this did is it eliminated Japan's ability to be an offensive force in the Pacific against the United States. And so from this point in the war, while Japan will wage a couple of offensives, especially in the Philippine Sea, they are more or less incapable of attacking the U.S. outside of their major sphere. And so this is going to be that turning point like you guys are talking about. Yeah, this that added on to the fact that the Japanese 3,000 personnel that was a majority of their experienced pilots, uh, ground crew for their aircrafts, and seamen. I mean, that was lots of personnel to lose in one battle. And as Coach Ravadi said earlier, they couldn't re- replace the four aircraft carriers that they lost because just the manufacturing wasn't there for it. Um, this really did turn the entire Pacific battle from that offensive mindset to a, just a grueling, slow, defensive battle just for the rest of the war. To your point, these are also the aircraft carriers that conducted Pearl Harbor. And so from a morale standpoint in the United States, if you don't think that was on every newspaper in the country, and we we more or less claim that every pilot involved in Pearl Harbor was dead at this point or captured, which wasn't completely true, but they're more or less all out of commission at this point. Yeah, so after this is all said and done, uh, it massively turned the tide in the Pacific. Like you said, the, uh, the Japanese can no longer be on the offensive standpoint. They're always they're more of like, Stand your ground, you know, do whatever you can. And on top of that, Japanese prisoners reveal vital intel on their naval power and positions. And they now have to force, they're forced to abandon all further plans of the Pacific. And they're really left with nothing but survival at that point. 
and, and I don't think, you know, I don't want to get the, the wrong opinion. Like the war is by no means over at this point. It, it just, when you look at it from a historical perspective, this is kind of a turning point. For the United States, it starts a new phase in the war, right? It, it's, it's that hard road back, that push across the Pacific. And as we'll talk about in class, guys, uh, the island hopping campaign. And this is going to lead directly to the Battle of Guadalcanal, which is at the end of the starting at the end of the summer. But as we'll see in that, the Japanese Navy still is still there because they defeat the U.S. Navy in a major battle at Guadalcanal. And so this is by no means over. But to your point, you're direct. You're completely right. It stops the major offensives that Japan had been planning for 1942. At this point, they are now going to be waging a defensive war. Now, do they think they can win that war? Yeah, they think they can kind of bleed us down until we can't do it anymore. And that's going to be the strategy. And their Navy is going to try and rebuild slowly but surely. But as we know, the U.S. Navy is going to outproduce them tenfold. To add on to that, later in the war, as more Japanese officers would be captured and everything, one of the officers was being flown back to one of our uh, installments or whatever, or one of our bases for questioning. And we flew over one of our fleets, and he said, even with that fleet, he knew they were going to lose the war. And they told him that's not even the entire thing. Ten minutes later, they saw another fleet that was just as big, if not bigger. Yeah, and that goes to the point, by by the end of 1943, the United States Navy is just so incredibly large, bigger than pretty much every other Navy in the world combined at the, at the time. And by the end of the war, it is. So those are definitely big factors. Now, I'm going to ask you guys a couple of little questions uh, midway. Uh, what do you guys think is the most, one, the, the most significant decision that is made at Midway? So we'll go with that one. Charlie had talked about it earlier in one of the split-second decisions like we talked about in class. Um, I think by far the best decision that was made was not turning back and continuing to look for that fleet and following that cruiser back to its main fleet. Because without that, then who knows if we would have found it in the later times. Yeah, McCluskey's decision, I think, is is really a good one. Uh, the, the, the movie that came out about two years ago, I guess, three years ago now, uh, Midway really highlights that a lot as being the kind of big catalyst for this. So that, no, that's, I think that's a, that's a good one. Now, let me get your thoughts on this. So six months before Midway, you had the largest intelligence failure in U.S. history at the time, which was Pearl Harbor. Midway, you could argue, is probably one of the most successful intelligence runs that we have in the entire war. What are your thoughts on that? I think the, Jap- the Americans realized their mistake with Pearl Harbor, and they realized what precautions they had to take and what they had to do to secure their defenses and their personnel. So I think they really stepped up the intel side of the war and decided that they actually needed to pay attention to Japanese transmissions. And at, like in one of the books we're reading in class, it mentions how they didn't even know where the Japanese fleet was for the two weeks leading up to Pearl Harbor. They could have, it could have been at the entrance to the harbor, and they wouldn't even have known. That, that just goes into the, the idea that the Americans weren't ready initially for the in, intel side of the war, but they really stepped up their game for Midway. And there was a lack of trust between the general naval personnel, like your hierarchy admirals, uh, and even your administrative officials. There was a lack of trust with them and the you know intelligence side of things because it was something they did not understand. And the other thing is obviously – this battle along with Coral Sea, and this goes to my next question, how did these battles signify a change in the way navies would fight each other in the future? It's kind of, these two battles kind of killed the idea of the battleship being the king of the ocean. Before this, uh, and in World War I, the battleship was seen as, you know, the, the ultimate 
naval weapon. And as we saw in Pearl Harbor, a lot of people thought no one, no plane could sink a battleship, but we definitely saw that a plane can sink a battleship at Pearl Harbor. Uh, this kind of set the tone for the rest of the battle that, and for the world's naval doctrine was that aircraft carriers were kind of the, the pinnacle of naval warfare because it allowed you to have so much versatility in a, in a battle from the air, with, but also from the ground with its escorts and everything. Even today, aircraft carriers have a certain mystique to them, I think. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of awe when you get to go on. There's these giant floating military bases. So it was a very, you know, very good observation. Uh, do you guys have any uh, closing thoughts on this? The Midway was a very important battle in the Pacific. And just we wanted to make sure everybody knew that. And just to see that not everything was so cut and dry with, with war that Yes, we won the battle, but in the beginning of the battle, we didn't look like we were going to win. We kept losing squadron after squadron after squadron, but we, we turned it around with uh, Wade McCluskey. Yeah, and with our inexperienced pilots and somewhat bad planes and dive bomber technology and torpedoes, it really wasn't looking good for us at the beginning. And I think that that's pretty much in line with the entire war as a whole, right? It doesn't look like it's going well from 1941, December 7, through 1942 in the summer. And this is kind of that turning point of it. So uh, very good job, guys. This was episode one of season two of Tigers by the Fire, a podcast from Holy Cross High School about World War II discussions and stories. Thank you for listening. 